Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. I would say reading poetry is the best way. Trying to imitate one of your favorite poets as a way of getting mentored in poetry. You can get a sense of momentum as you're getting critique from other people about what's working or maybe what's not working, but you also get better as a poet as you critique their work, you know, and kind of highlight for them what seems most alive, you know, what stands out, because a lot of times, Um, That's different to us than our audience. You know, they may respond to something that we totally thought, oh, you won't respond to that. You'll respond to something else, you know. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. My guest today is Denver writer and poet Joy Sawyer. In addition to authoring several nonfiction books, Joy is the author of a recent poetry collection entitled Tongues of Men and Angels. Her poetry, essays, and fiction have appeared in such diverse publications as Books and Culture, Christianity Today in Literature, Inklings, The Mars Hill Review, New York Quarterly, and others. Joy is also an innovative performance poet, and she has long created unique ways for others to experience poetry. Along with her husband, Scott, also an author, she's presented her original poetry and liturgy one-act play, The Gospel According to Poetry, at literary conferences, writing retreats, theaters, universities, and churches across the country. Since 2009, Joy has taught both poetry and introduction to creative writing classes at the Lighthouse Writers' Workshop in Denver, the largest nonprofit literary center in Colorado and the Mountain West. In addition to Lighthouse, Joy also has taught both writing and healing poetry and poetry coursework in the Masters of Liberal Arts program at the University of Denver. Joy received an M.A. from the New York University, where she was awarded the Herbert Rubin Award for Outstanding Creative Writing. So join me now and listen to my conversation with Joy Sawyer. So many things are going through my mind right now, but back to the idea of Lectio Divina is that um, this idea of you don't need to understand it. That if I if I read uh, a chapter of the Bible that's complex and there's historical stuff in there and it's got words I don't understand, I may not understand the chapter, but there might be three words that say God loves you, and I understand that, and that can impact me. And sometimes yeah. I, I'm thinking that poetry is all about understanding the poem. 
Yes, and so many people feel that way. What I've seen is there's more understanding that grows, the less fear there is. And of course, you know, we can see the parallels, like you're saying with Lectio Divina, of people saying, oh, the Bible's beyond my comprehension. And yet we see so much of the scriptures are written in poetic language. You know, the prophets, Proverbs, Psalms. Revelation. Yeah. What's a oh, poem? Revelation. Oh, and I'll tell you, one of my favorite books is um, Reversed Thunder by Eugene Peterson, which is a whole book on the book of Revelation. Changed my life. And his premise is you can't read this book unless you read it as poetry. That many people may be surprised by that idea that mm-hmm. Revelation is a is a poem. Yes, full of imagery, full of passion, full of rhythm. <laughs> you know, and I think even early on, even when I first began reading the Bible, which wasn't until I was in high school, I was struck by the poetry of it. I used to say things aloud and read them rhythmically, and that's how they stayed with me. I didn't try to memorize it. It just went in my soul. Which poems do as well for you. Yes, right? Exactly. So you have written a book most recently. Uh, As I said in our introduction, um, you've written two other books that are not works of poetry, but your newest one is Tongues of Men and Angels. And tell me about how that came into being, and I'd like you to read something from that. Great. First of all, this particular book is a very different book for me. I've always written in free verse, you know, with no kind of meter or rhyme or or anything like that, probably since I was in junior high. But several years ago, I began working on a book manuscript that was in the voice of a historical figure. I'm still working on that book. But in order to, like, exercise my poetic muscles... I started taking more classes in formal verse because I knew some of the poems in this collection would need to be written with that kind of a voice. And so I started experimenting and trying a lot of different things on. And so this was a very different kind of book for me. And I honestly didn't expect it to be published, but it really... I sent it out a few times, and a publisher took it. It was a really quick process for it to come out. And the Tongues of Men and Angels, which we know is a reference to 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I am a poet, but I have not love, I am but a clanging symbol. But all throughout this manuscript is the theme of the tongue. And that has had a lot of resonance uh, for me in my own personal story, but also in the various ways we hear the tongue spoken about. You know, there's that reference, and then we have every tongue, you know, will confess. And then we have, you know, in James, the man who can hold his tongue is perfect in every way, you know, all these kinds of references. And what I found when I started putting this collection together is there was a theme of that um, weaving throughout. So I'd love for you to read uh, something from that, will you? Sure. I'll read the first poem that starts off this collection. This is a poem called An Ottava Rima, and it's called Italian Exile. 
The friend who fled to Tuscany one spring arrived to find fine fields ablaze in bright Barbera grapes, a succulent free swing of tangled vines and ripened fruit, a sight so sweet my friend could scarcely bear to sing his song of deep delight in prose. He'd write, then throw away, begin again, erase. But then the postcard came. I tasted grace. That's beautiful. Again, um, understanding that, that could be a conversation about you know what was going on inside of you and what all it represents, but hearing those images of of uh, fruit and color, and I could, as I was listening to that, it was like I was, I was taking in the aromas that were right there. I think I want to go read more poetry with this idea, not of understanding, but just trying to experience. Yes, yeah, and even just starting with, I like this image, you know, I like this rhythm, I like this sound. What about the person who wants to start experimenting with writing poetry? How would you say that they might begin? I would say reading poetry is the best way. Um, And even with beginning poets, a lot of us who teach poetry recommend trying to imitate one of your favorite poets as a way of getting mentored in poetry. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of workshops and classes just because I think you can get a sense of momentum as you're getting critique from other people about what's working or maybe what's not working, but you also get better as a poet as you critique their work, you know, and kind of highlight for them what seems most alive, you know, what stands out, because a lot of times um, that's different to us than our audience. You know, they may respond to something that we totally thought, oh, you won't respond to that, you'll respond to something else, you know. When I was growing up, Uh, And I was the youngest of five, so I kind of took on the classic rock of my older siblings. To me, my poetry were song lyrics. And to this day, I still have obscure song lyrics memorized. How how is poetry different from lyric that's put to music? It's not. That's poetry. It seems, though, that without the music, that the words have to stand on their own and maybe be more vivid and... And rhythmic, but so you're saying that that song lyrics are poetry. They are. And do you use the song lyrics in poetry therapy? A lot of people do, especially those who work with at-risk youth. They just find works well. Yeah, I think that's probably what's behind a lot of hip hop is uh, putting to words um, people's experiences. Yeah, and you know, with the advent of hip hop and slam poetry. And, you know, a spoken word poetry, poetry has gotten a little bit more um, press and wider release in different places because you'll really hear the music of poetry in a lot of those poets. There's a definite emphasis on rhythm, you know, and so that kind of is highlighted for me. And to me, that is a lot more like music. Can you give me an example of some of your clinical work, obviously without revealing a person's uh, identity, of a story where you saw somebody really come alive or connect with themselves through poetry or literature in a way that they might not have otherwise? That would be hard for just one person. What I can tell you is 
kind of like in the clinical models you and I were trained in before we became LPCs. In our particular program, we had to deal with our own story. You know, we had to use our own story as a way to learn the counseling process. Well, what I found is a lot of times when we were training poetry therapists or um, educators, poets, you know, counselors, they were going through their own process as they were learning. And you would just see huge kinds of, I felt like changes, even beginning on a week that you would start at the end. There were, sometimes there was just this physical <sighs> calmness. The same way you feel sometimes when a poem is read in the room and the energy just goes <sighs> like that. And, of course, I didn't have the data you know, at the time, it was just watching these visceral effects. But, you know, there's plenty of people who will tell you stories of what happened to them as a result of doing this. I mean, one of the best known things that I can tell your listeners about is in the wake of 9-11, the National Association of Poetry Therapy saw that there were so many people passing out poems and turning to poetry. And so what they did is they approached several well-known poets, and then others of us who um, might not be as well-known, asked them to donate poems, put together a booklet called Giving Sorrow Words, which is several poems, and in the back, there are writing prompts to go with each of the poems. These things were passed out for free in um, all kinds of places, and to this day are used in hospice or, or other places where people are dealing with, you know, intense sorrow. And it was such a, a help to people, and it was something they could just carry around. You know, in the wake of a crisis like that, a lot of times, you know, right in that moment, they need something to hold on to you know, before you get the therapist involved or, you know, if it's a long process or if money is an issue and here's something that people can do on their own that actually has a good benefit to them. That's remarkable because um, in critical incident trauma debriefing and in um, other kinds of crisis counseling, the two main things are getting people to, to reveal and convey what happened to them verbally but then also to be validated in their experience, and it seems like poetry could offer both of those. Yes, and it's that dual thing of here's a poem, and then I'm going to write about it. Here's a couple of directions I can take, you know, to write about it. Will you take a moment and read another poem? Yes, and actually what I could do is read the poem for you that is uh, included in that Oh, fantastic. The one that you wrote Giving for, Sorrow Words, yes. And you wrote one of those poems. And I wrote one of those poems. This is called When You Leave Us. When you move wordlessly from one life into another, you bring all who ever declared our love with our hearts, with our mouths. We see a new maple, a bush on fire, a tiny sparrow perched on a flat rock. Though you've made your entrance into a new home, our old homes are full of the things you loved. You live on mantles, in journals, on recipe cards smudged with sugar cookie dough. Is nothing nearer than love itself? Even when this life carefully tucks you in, 
closes your bedroom window, whispers its soft good night. When midnight falls, we are certain you hear our voices, low and full on brick patios, ice cubes swirling in our paper cups. If we listen carefully underneath the crickets and the murmur of twilight, we will hear you breathing, as steady as this slow dance that begins among us, underneath patient stars. Beautiful. Once again, there's no other word. That, as part of giving sorrow words, anybody who's experienced a loss um, would particularly relate to that. How did that come out of you? How was that created in your own story? Does, does a poet, and did you need to have experienced loss to write that, or do you draw on a collection of inner experiences? Yeah, I think I drew on a collection. I actually wrote it in a group when I was training to be a poetry therapist. And there was some kind of writing prompt, and it almost came out just like that. I don't have that experience all that often. I'm usually tweaking and changing my poems, but this one came out pretty easily. So you didn't write that for the book. You had that and I contributed had, that. I had just written it right before the book. Wow. That's... It reminds me, speaking of 9-11, and I just, I just read this, uh, but Bruce Springsteen had written almost all the songs for his album, The Rising, which is known as the, the post-9-11 album um, about speaking into people's sorrow and death. And a lot of the songs were in just in an uncanny way about into the fire, and um, it's remarkable. So, Well, I think a lot of musicians or poets can attest to that transcendent aspect sometimes of poetry. I mean, I've, I have poems now that I reread, and I'm like, this was beyond me. I didn't even understand what I was writing here. Or this speaks to something that came around 10 years later for me that I needed to read. <laughs> How many poems have you written, do you suspect? Oh, hundreds. So you've, you've developed in how you write and I would love for you to read a couple more of your favorites. Here is one. This is known as, uh, this is called a Spenserian stanza. And again, I'm reading formal verse. There, there's a rhyme scheme to this. There's meter. But for some reason, this, this poem is really special to me. It's called Death's Columbo. When we dare draw hope's last refrain of breath, and breathless from love's past, we glimpse our best bright longings now laid bare. And when thin death, his face dissolved, grows pale when paired with rest from sheer albino fear. When our grave's guest, arrested for grand theft, his shortened stay payday, the way death's sting discerns our test of life and will not underlord our day, we'll call it a night's work. But until then, we play. I love the rhythm in that. Did you have to learn that when you talked about the... Yes, the rhyme scheme on that, A, B, A, B... B, C, B, C, C. Which sounds very technical, but I know that when I read a poem, and I've tried to read some of the ones that you mentioned earlier, the different poets, I never know how to read it and how it should sound and how and why, you know, lines are shortened and then there's a space beneath and that kind of thing. Is that all related to this 
Well, this is what's called iambic pentameter, which Uh, you would notice. I remember that from junior high. Yeah. Da-da, 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 da-da. So the trick is not to make it sound sing-songy, to have enough movement in it so that you're not conscious of that. But you've got all the rhyming words at the at the very end of the line. So there's breath, best, death, rest, guess, stay, test, day, play. I never would have known that. Well, if you were looking at it, you may, if I said, hey, this rhymes, why don't you look, you know, you might right. have seen that. So These are the times which try men's souls. The summer soldier. Nope. See, already I goofed it up. It's complicated. And what is it as a poet and writer that makes you drawn to different forms like that? You know, like I said, I was experimenting so that I could write this other book, which I'm still working on. And once I got into it, I found it was kind of like a playground. I mean, you have these parameters, but then you got to try to get as much life and as much juice and as much energy in those parameters. And that really appealed to me. So the parameters actually allow you to have a different kind of creativity. Yes. And I had a poet friend who, who once said that his poems are markedly different when he has to use a form. Something different comes out. And that's true of, of me, too. It's just like a different message, a different way of speaking comes out. Who is the historical figure that you're basing this other book on? You know, I probably won't say right now, but I think it's a really interesting topic that your uh, listeners might be interested in. Then you'd have to have me back on. Carl and then... Rogers. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Sigmund Freud. Indira Gandhi. You're not going to tell me. Uh, actually, it's Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, that's right, man. Sammy, he he had... Oh, keep going. <laughs> Sorry, that was a softball. That, I mean, yeah, that's on. right. Uh, well, what's the name of that book? You can't say that either. And that will be a book of poetry? <laughs> yes. Or? Okay. Yes. Book of poetry. Okay. Yeah. So, Joy, as we wrap up, you had mentioned earlier uh, a resource and a place that you've been involved with poetry called Lighthouse. Tell me about that and who are some of the people there that are writing poetry? Um, yeah, Lighthouse Writers here in Denver is just such an incredible resource for readers and writers of all types. And I've been teaching over there for about eight years, but when uh, Andrea Dupree and Mike Henry first came here from Boston years ago and started Lighthouse, we were involved in and out taking workshops, slowly got more involved as years went on. And I've taken lots of workshops there. I've benefited from what they have. They have a great lit fest coming up the first two weeks of June where they bring in all kinds of different types of writers. There are workshops and salons and panel discussions and free readings. And it's just a great place to grow and take workshops if you'd like to know more about writing and poetry. So there's several amazing poets over at Lighthouse. I mean, all of them are. You? Just, no, well, hey, <laughs> I, I'm down here in the pecking order. But um, one poet that your listeners may be interested in is a poet named John Brehm, B-R-E-H-M. If you Google that, you'll find him. His latest book is called Help is on the Way. And there's a very, very meaningful section 
of poems at the end about his nephew, George, who needed a liver transplant. And John was basically the best donor. And he flew over to Japan to donate part of his liver. And it's the story of all that. And talking about writing as a way of healing, I think it's one of the most beautiful examples. Um, But John writes wonderful poetry. And um, we also have a poet over at Lighthouse named J. Diego Fry, who is hilarious. I mean, truly, truly hilarious kind of body, but hilarious. And he has two books out that was that were published by Conundrum Press here in town. One is called Umbrellas or Else, and the other is called The Year the Eggs Cracked. And I, I, that's all I can tell you about J.D. is that, seriously, I can't be with him without crying. That's how funny this guy is. Sometimes just the titles <clears throat> of books make me want to purchase them and read them. Oh, one of the best titles, I think, of all time is Tony Hoagland, who wrote a book called What Narcissism Means to Me. <laughs> Enough about me. Let's talk about me. <laughs> what narcissism means to me. That's great. I want to thank you for being on the program, and I'm hoping that people um, get to experience more poems and dig into your poems as well. Do you have a website? Yes, it's www.joyrouliersawyer.com. And, and you have to spell, spell Roulier. R-O-U-L-I-E-R. Joyrouliersawyer.com. Joy, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at restoringthesoul.com. Restoring the Soul.